Good morning, everybody. Welcome once again to our Sunday morning digital cathedral, our time together every week when we get into the Word and grow and stretch together. Uh, I've really enjoyed this study that we've been doing on Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and I hope you have too. Today I want to look at Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Uh, we've got three chapters left, chapters 2, 3, and 4, and each week I'm going to take one chapter and cover the whole thing because there's some great truth in these chapters that just, the whole chapter like fits together well. So I want to take all of Colossians chapter 2 and look at it today. Just one real quick request, actually two quick requests. If you have not picked up a copy of my book, Hell's Illusion, I'm sorry about the, it's backwards here. I'm not sure how to get it turned around on the video. I can turn it around on Facebook video, but I'm not sure on my camera video how to get it turned around. Anyway, Hell's Illusion. 225 pages that helps dispel the myth of hell and it releases all of those people that all their life, and there's just multitudes of us that were held in bondage to fear of an eternal conscious torment that is absolutely not scriptural. Nothing Jesus taught, nothing Paul taught. It's not an Old Testament or a New Testament teaching. So you can go to Amazon and pick that up. Might get a couple extra copies and give to your friends. Let me take the heat for introducing the idea that there's no such animal as hell. That way you don't have to and hand them out to your friends. If you've read the book, second thing, if you've read the book, I would really appreciate you going over to Amazon and writing a review. I'm not gonna ask publicly for people to do that, but you're my family, you're the digital cathedral, so I'm gonna ask that if you have read the book, just go over to Amazon and you know click on where it shows the book for sale, and if you just scroll down to the bottom of the page, you can write a recommendation and rate the book. A lot of people read those recommendations before they buy a book. I know I do. I want to see what other people are saying about it. So if you enjoyed the book, got a lot out of it, felt it was worth a read, I would highly appreciate that you give me a, a review over on Amazon. Fair enough? All right, let's get into Colossians 2. In this chapter, Paul is dealing with an issue that I think most all of us have faced uh, early on in our grace walk. I know I sure did. And many are going to be facing it as, as this tsunami continues to grow and people come in at just a fundamental level of coming to an understanding of what grace was. Maybe where you were a year ago, two years, five years ago, or maybe just 90 days. You know, there's a lot of people that are following in your, your, your footsteps, in your tracks. That's one reason why it's important that you comment uh, on this video and that you share it with people because a lot of people are coming into what you've experienced and they're hungry for more. And this is certainly one source that will help those people that are hungry and looking for more. So Paul addresses a, a problem that a lot of us faced. I know I did. I spent probably two years wrestling with this, this particular dilemma as a pastor. Uh, had several hundred people that were you know, looking to me for leadership. And I remember struggling through what Paul deals with in this second chapter, and I wish I had known then what I know now, what I can pull out of this second chapter. And the problem that Paul addresses is this. It's getting a revelation of grace, getting a revelation of uh, the unlimited, unconditional love of God, of the finished work of the cross, all of the things that we study, getting, getting maybe just a foundational revelation of that, then becoming influenced 
by those that try to jerk you back, either through shame, through argument, uh, through rationalization, through condemnation, uh, maybe they have scriptures they try to prove, to get you to come back to where you were before you saw what you see. And you and I have said many times that once you see it, you can't unsee it. So the, the attempt is not successful. Ultimately, I don't think if you have a real heart that's pursuing God, but it can influence you for a period of time. It sure influenced me, and there were days I would sit in my office and think, you know, have I lost my mind? Uh, it seems like I'm the only one that sees this. I knew nobody, nobody else in, in Houston that I could reach out to, that I could share with, go to lunch with, and knock the ideas around with. Had nobody that I could really relate to. And so you fight this thing of being influenced by other people, especially people you respect, maybe pastors that you've uh, been taught by for years or close friends that you highly respect. They have a lot of integrity and ethics and, you know, they're just, they're close to you. And so they do have your ear. Now, one thing I've noticed is that that influence to, to pull you back from where, where you are now always comes through people that think they have an understanding of the Bible or, or they're religious in their, in their ideas. I've never had a person in the world, quote, in the world, that, that hasn't had their eyes opened yet. I've never had any of those try to dissuade me from what I was seeing. In fact, most are um, fascinated. They want to know more because it's entirely different than anything they've ever heard. Even if they're not going to church, they have enough because of our culture, enough spiritual background to know there's a heaven, they think, and a hell, and that the good people go to heaven, the bad people go to hell. So when you begin to talk to them about grace and unconditional love, it sparks their attention. Um, when you've been raised a certain way and indoctrinated in a particular theological stream for years and years and years, and you hear something that's contrary to it, my reaction at first was, I don't believe that. That can't be right. That's that's not what I believe. That's not what I've always heard. But then your eyes begin to open and you begin to see things. And then some of the pieces of the puzzle start coming together. And when you explain that to your friends, their immediate reaction is, that's wrong. You're, you, you're, you're making some mistakes here. You're, you're falling for false teaching. You're getting out there where the buffalo roam and the deer and the antelope play. You need to come back to the reservation. You need to come back to where you were. So... You know, Jesus encountered the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the group that, that tried to discredit Jesus. They opposed the freedom that Jesus was bringing. They opposed the intimate relationship with the Father that Jesus was inspiring. And, um, you know, the co-crucifixion that Paul would teach. In John chapter 10, Jesus encountered this. And let, let, let's just walk through this a little bit before we really get into the meat of Colossians chapter 2, because... This really is the problem that a lot of people face when they, when they first come in to some new truth. And the amazing thing is, the more truth you come into, the people that might have started with you in a grace walk, but haven't gone any further. Now, as you move on to inclusion, as you move on to uh, you know the illusion of, of hell and you dismantle that, they can become the ones that try to bring you back to just the foundation of grace. Grace is the doorway into the treasure house of the riches of God. Grace will take you in through the door. And when you come in through the door, you see the treasure house and you begin to 
um, you know, you begin to learn so much more than you did just at the initial steps. But here's, here's how Jesus dealt with those that came to him. In John chapter 10, the first two verses, Jesus says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, Jesus is the door, but climbs up some other way, like by the law, by effort, by religion, is a thief and a robber. So right now he's telling us at the very very beginning of John chapter 10, and I'm going to get to verse 10 in just a minute, where it says a thief comes to kill, to steal, to destroy. And Jesus right here is telling us who the thief is. It's not the devil. It's not the devil. It's those that try to work it their way into the kingdom some other way than through the door of grace himself. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the sheep, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. So he tells us right away who the thief and the robber is. It's not the devil, it's, it's you Pharisees. And back up in chapter 9, he's, he's making this whole, uh, his, this whole discourse to the Pharisees. And in uh, chapter, chapter 9 and verse 40, it says, And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? So Jesus then goes into this lengthy discourse and from verses, uh, from chapter 10, verse 1, all the way down, he is addressing the Pharisees. So in verses 7 and 10, he's, he's speaking directly to, the, to that group that was trying to pull Jesus back into law, that were trying to discount everything that Jesus was saying about the reflection that he was giving of his father, the freedom that he was bringing to the planet, the reconciliation, everything that Jesus gave to us, they were trying to discredit to bring him back under the old system. So Jesus says this in verse seven, then Jesus said to them, them Pharisees again, most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And whoever came before me, that's big, we could spend a lot of time there. Those that came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not, verse 10, come but except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So this, these three verses, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and religion is the verse 10, thief, robber, and killer. It's not the devil. Religion made verse 10 the devil when it's themselves and their construction of laws that constrict us like a python to squeeze the abundant life out of us. Jesus came to give us an abundant life, and it's religion that tries to squeeze and, and, and dissuade us from the life that Jesus came to give it. Now, here's what happens. When, when you come down to verse 20 of chapter 10, here was the Pharisees' response. And they are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's their response to what Jesus said. You can guess it's not going to be positive. And many of them said, he has a demon and is man. Now that's when you really uh, get out into the truths that God is revealing today, a lot of your religious friends are going to tell you that you've been deceived. They're not, they may not say you have a demon like they did to Jesus, but they're going to put you under that same light that somehow you've gotten yourself way out there and you need to get back 
to where, to where it's safe. All right. So with that in mind of what Jesus had to say to them, I want to come back to Colossians 2, and we're going to spend most of the rest of the time in, in this chapter, although we may look at a few other scriptures. But let's go back to, to Colossians chapter 2. This is a dynamite chapter, powerful, powerful, powerful chapter. And P Paul is telling them in this second chapter of uh, Colossians, he's saying, you have the truth. I brought you into liberty. I brought you into the abundant life. Now, don't choke it. Don't let anybody dissuade you. Don't let anybody pull you back away from what I've been teaching you. Don't let go, no matter how educated they seem, no matter how sophisticated the argument, uh, no matter how, how tricky the Pharisees seem to be or the legalist tries to pull you out of what you found. Don't leave what I've been teaching you. Now, it can be the Pharisees of Jesus' day that does that. It could be the Judaizers of Paul's day, or it could be the evangelical church of our day, right? The Jews of Jesus' day were 100% law, right? They, they were not satisfied with anything except the 613 laws of Moses and keeping them, and that's how you found favor with God. Now, by the time Paul got on the scene and introduced the gospel that Jesus revealed to him, it moved to what, what, he, what he called Judaizers, and the Judaizers were a mixture of law and grace, right? They said, yeah, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the gospel of grace, but you must be circumcised, so they brought a little bit of law back in. Now, the evangelicals of our day that tried to rob us of our life, they have what I often refer to as the bait-and-switch gospel. And the Judaizers kind of put the law out front, get, get, get circumcised and then come in and receive the grace. And of course, the Jews had no grace whatsoever. But the evangelicals of our day have been pretty smart. And so they put the grace out front says, and they say, yes, we'll receive you. Remember the song we used to sing, Just As I Am Without One Plea? Okay, that, they say, come on, just like you are, Jesus will take you just like you are. That's the grace. But then once they bait you, they switch you to the law. And once you're in, then becomes all the things that you must do and the things you cannot do in order to retain what it is that you got by grace. Now, isn't that amazing? Most of us were raised up in a church that believed you got it by grace, but you kept it by works. It, it never entered our minds that if we weren't good enough to get it, why, how could we be good enough to keep it? Right? It's either all by grace or, or it's not. So the thief of the free abundant life has one objective, and it's not to give you the abundant life. The thief of the abundant life has one objective, and that is to conform you to, conform you to their form of religion, whether it's Calvinist, Armenian, uh, charismatic, I don't care what it is. What their objective is, is to disciple you, and that's what discipleship is about today, is to conform you to the pattern, to the image of what they are all about. <clears throat> excuse me, and most of you that have jumped outside the box, you have found out that religion plays dirty. <laughs> they, re they will resort to anything, including, including setting you outside the camp and ignoring you. That happens so often, and that's what Paul's getting at in this chapter. So Paul deals with the appeal that those hip dip deep in religion make to those that have stepped outside the box. So there's three things in this chapter, and we're gonna cover these three things in the next few minutes. Three things Paul really gets at. Number one, he tells them what they've been freely given. Number two, he tells them how they got what they were freely given. And number three, toward the end of the chapter, 
He says, these are the things that want to come in and steal what you have been freely given. So what is it that they have? What does this chapter reveal in, in uh, Colossians chapter 2? What is it that Paul tells them that you have? Let's start with verse 3. All right, let's start with verse 2. He said that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of the understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, born of the Father and of Christ. All right, now here's what they have. Verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now stop just a minute. If they have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, where do they reside? If, if the Father and the Christ have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, where do they reside? They reside within you, right? Remember John 14, 20, Jesus said, In that day you'll know that I am in the Father and that you're in me and I'm in you. There's, a, there's a, an entanglement with you, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? So they, they dwell. We are one with them. So within you lies all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, knowledge, knowledge is knowing, but the knowledge he's talking about is not intellectual knowledge. It's a knowing that you know. It's the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. It means a knowledge that is gained by personal relationship. You know, some of, some of you know me just from the digital cathedral by what you observe. Others of you I know because we've gone to lunch together or you've come to a conference where I've taught, we've spent some time, we've, we've got to meet each other. So you know me on a different level than those that just know me from, from the internet, from social media, or from the digital cathedral uh, Sunday and Wednesday night, right? So some of you have spent time with me. Some of you have gone places with me and you know me on a deeper level. That's, that's what Gnosis is. He says, in you is hidden all the treasures of knowledge. Coming into that knowledge, it comes through an intimate relationship with the Father, through the Son, and the Spirit. That entanglement together creates a release of knowledge within your life of who they are, what they are, and how they think. The mind of Christ has been released in you, and you, you acclimate that mind into your thinking, and you release your mind and grasp his mind through that intimate relationship, all right? Now, we might call it revelation knowledge. That would, be, that would be a pretty good term for it, revelation knowledge. It's what Paul received directly from Jesus when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and then spent time with him in the desert. When he, the, the message that Jesus revealed to Paul came because of that knowledge, that intimate relationship, the gnosis. He says, not only is that, but that you are endued with the wisdom from the Father through the Son and the Spirit. Now, wisdom is knowing how to use the knowledge, right? how, to, how to apply it, how to put it into process, how to make it workable in your life. So there are two things Paul says to the Colossian Christians that you have. He says, deposited within you are the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let me read that third verse again. He said, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In them are hidden, and they are within you. So within you is what they possess, which is all wisdom and knowledge. So you have that source within you. 
Now, the trick is how to draw it out, right? Both the Father, through the Christ, dwells in you, which gives you access to within of all wisdom and knowledge. But the trick is, how in the world do we draw it out? Now, there's a verse in Proverbs that I think is very beneficial on this. You know, I, I'm all about the do, right? I'm all about learning how to manifest it, how to put it into action. I've kind of learned that I'm not to just show show to you the Christ, I'm to show the Christ within you, right? I just don't show you show Christ to you, I show the Christ that's in you. How to, how to get him out, how to work it out, how to move in it. There's a verse in Proverbs chapter 20, so hold your finger right there in Colossians if you're, if you're following along with me, and come over to Proverbs chapter 20, and I wanna read one verse that helps us to see how to draw this out. Proverbs chapter 20, and let's see what verse is it. Verse five, he said, counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water. The wisdom and knowledge that has been deposited in you through the indwelling of the Father in Christ is, is deep water. It's, that's the counsel. You want the counsel of their wisdom and their knowledge, right? He said, but a man of understanding will draw it out. A man of understanding will draw it out. The, the greatest counsel, the greatest direction, the greatest possibilities lie deep within you. It's called knowledge and it's called wisdom that are from them. So how do you draw it out? It's in there. How do you get it out? Let me suggest to you some easy ways to get it out. You meditate. That's, a, that's very foundational. You know what meditation is? Meditation is just chewing it over and over and over. You feel like the Lord's saying something to you. So ponder it. Crockpot it. Consider it. Spend some time with it. Look at it from all different angles. And you listen. And as you, as you, as you meditate and listen, all right, hear me. I'm big about this. You take some baby steps. You don't have to take quantum leaps. Take some baby steps in the direction that you're feeling and seeing by spirit, all right? I think motion is imperative to pulling up out of us the knowledge and the wisdom. All right, you wanna start a business. You wanna start a business. You feel like God said, I want you to go ahead. You got, it. You got freedom to do this. So you're pondering it. So you begin to take some small steps. Maybe you file a fictitious name report with the state so that you can open. Maybe you, maybe you just drive around looking for a facility or you think about how I can, how I can market the business. You just begin, you, know, you don't have to jump in and open doors tomorrow and, and, and put out, try to rush all through it at once. You just take some small baby steps and let him direct you. I mean, the Bible says that the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. The steps, that means there's some motion to this. So let me encourage you. Let me just encourage you. You can take a couple of steps, and if, and if you feel the red light, stop. If you feel the green light, go. If you feel the yellow light, proceed with caution. You understand? But I think, I think the motion is important to this. And as you, as you make the motion, keep pondering. Be, you know, define the picture in your mind of what you really want to see, what you want to accomplish. And as you do that, what you'll find is you don't have to spend hours begging God to show you you don't have to spend hours seeking him or questioning yourself on your motives or what your real interests are. It, Paul's telling the Colossians, 
The wisdom and the knowledge is within you and you draw it up. You draw it up. And you do that as you meditate and listen and take little bitty steps. Now, as you go, you might take bigger steps. You might come to a place where he has opened the door so wide to you that you take quantum leaps. That you, you know, you just jump. You just jump in. You, you know that you know that you know. And that's what the wisdom will do. So what Paul is doing here in Colossians 2 is he's building security. He's building their foundation. That's what I'm doing with you this morning. I'm building your security. I'm building your foundation, letting you know that within you, just you and I talking this morning, within you lies all the wisdom and the understanding of the Father and the Christ. They dwell within you. Then he puts the cherry on top of the Sunday in that second chapter of Colossians with two verses after he tells them, all wisdom and knowledge dwell in you. He kind of puts a cherry on top of the Sunday with verses that I read all the time. But I'm going to read them again because they're in this second chapter. And he gives us a little more assurance, a little more confidence, right? That's what he's doing here. He's telling them what they possess. They possess the wisdom and the knowledge of, of, of God himself, of the creator, of the Christ, the active agent in creation. I think you followed me enough to know that the Christ is the divine part of Jesus. The Christ took flesh and became Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. But the Christ is the active word in John 1 that created everything, and he became flesh. The word, the Christ, became flesh. So the Christ that dwells in you is the same creative force. Man, this is, this is amazing. It is the same creative force that created the world. Don't you think he can create your business? Don't you think he can create your finances? Don't you think he can create your health? Whatever you need lies within. And where we get tripped up is when we start looking for a source without rather than within. If within you lies all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, then what are you going to find on the outside that is not within? I think we need to learn to shift gears right here. You, you, need, you need knowledge. You've opened a business. You need knowledge how to run it. You need wisdom. It's within you. Does it, he may direct you to a book to read. He may direct you to a, a mentor that can help you. See, be open to whatever he says. That's why Jesus said, I only do what I see him do. I only say what I hear him say. He was open to whatever the Father was doing. Be open to what the Father's saying. He's building confidence into them that they have what it takes. Then he kind of, then he kind of puts, you know, he really brings it to a, a, a finale, finality of what they have in verse 9 when he says this about Jesus, that in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In this flesh man, Jesus, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In this one man, Father, uh, uh, Son, Christ, all is, all is within Jesus, the man. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All within the flesh manifestation of Jesus. Right? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was the Christ that was the Son. Jesus was the flesh manifestation of the Christ. All right? Now, I want you to get a visualization of this. Jesus was a man who had feelings and emotions, had hair on his head like you do, and he had these catchers on the side of his head like you do. He walked like you, talked like you. He was a flesh man. But within that flesh man, there was the fullness of everything. Now, he's, Paul is telling us what we have. 
Because in verse 10, this is almost too good to be true. He says, in him, you have been made complete. So let me read verse 9 and 10 together. After you understand verse 3, then he comes to verse 9 and 10. It says, in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he's showing us the pattern son. If within Jesus, the pattern son dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and he says in verse 10, and now you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power, then what he's saying is within you, flesh man, lies the same fullness that lied, laid within Jesus, the flesh man. So what he's doing in, in verse 9 is he's taking the limits off the Christ who fully manifested in the man Jesus. And by saying that, he's taking the limits off the Christ that fully dwells within you and that you are manifesting. You are manifesting the Christ that is within. So that verse 10, he just brings, brings you in as a full representative. He brings you in as, as a pattern, fitting the pattern which Jesus is so that you can say, I am Billy Christ, I'm Susie Christ, right? Because you're representing the fullness of, of the one in whom all fullness dwells. So this, this is what gets really, 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 really powerful here. So Paul's laying down in this second chapter of Colossians, no uncertain terms, what you fully possess, what you fully, and I, I want you to get the visualization, being fully entwined, meshed, in union with the Father through the Son and the Spirit. There's no separation. There's no line of, uh, there's no delineation. In you dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. See, because in you, all wisdom and knowledge dwells. So now we're learning how to pull it out, aren't we? We're learning how to shut the TV off. We're learning how to sit on the back porch and just contemplate, meditate, think, uh, visualize, uh, begin to, 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 to form in our thinking what he's saying to us. Now here's, here's the great thing. Point number two, Paul tells them how they got to where they have the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He tells them, second of all, how they got it. And this is where you make a complete 180 degree turn from religion. The Jews of Jesus' day, the Judaizers of Paul's day, or the evangelicals of our day all have uh, commandments in mind that you have, have, to, have to have right? It was the, the commandments that you have to have for the Jews was the law. For Paul's Judaizers, it was grace and law. And for the evangelicals, it's the bait and switch that I explained to you. So Paul lays all of that to rest. He lays the law, the mixture, uh, the bait and switch. He lays it all to rest on how they got verse 3 and verse 9 and 10 functional in their life. So let's why don't you just take a big sigh of relief this morning? Paul takes the pressure off. It's not up to you to get it. It's up to you to enjoy the journey. So wherever you're at in this thing, enjoy it. There's no pressure on you. He moves all that we just covered that you have. He moves it all from your due to his done. And man, that just frustrates the hell out of religion. It really does, literally frustrates the hell out of religion because whether it's the Judaizers, the Jews, the Judaizer evangelicals, it's all built on do, you must do. 
at some level. If you don't do, it's not true. Oh, that rhymes. If you don't do, it's not true to religion. So in verses 11 through 15, I want you to notice in these verses all of the in him, with him, because of him, all that he says, right? In these four, four or five verses, he's going to take all of the do out of it, and he's going to bring all of the done in. Watch verse 11. Colossians 2.11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So it wasn't a physical circumcision. It was a spiritual circumcision. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ did not circumcise you physically. He circumcised you spiritually. And what did he circumcise? He circumcised off of you all of the condemnation, all of the guilt, uh, all of the fear, all of the sin consciousness, all of the things that the Jews, the Judaizers, and evangelical Christianity put on you that you must do that you couldn't keep up with, that was impossible for you to accomplish. He severed all of that. He cut it all off. He cut the sin consciousness that, that evolved because of what the evangelical church told you that you have to do. He said, I've done it. I, I'm cutting it off of you. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm removing it from your life. I don't know how much, I don't know how much more plain I can make it. It's, it's, it's extinct. It no longer exists. So the only power that it has is what you give it. See, Re religion empowers flesh. It really does. When religion tells you not to do that empowers flesh to do. Isn't that what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, when he said that the strength of sin is the law? You give somebody a law, you've just, you've just encouraged their flesh to break it. Like, you ever been on a, a short fast, maybe three-day fast? Maybe seven days, long time. I've ever fasted, I think it was, it was 20 or 21 days, I can't remember. That's when I thought I could twist God's arm to do what I needed to have done by fasting. If you've ever been like a three-day fast before you really discovered grace and that you have the bridegroom, you have the, the, the Jesus so you don't fast, right? He said, when you don't have me, that's when you fast. But we got him. You, you're going on a three-day fast. You tell yourself, I'm not going to eat for three days. I'm not going to have no food pass through my lips for three days. I'll drink water, but I'm not eating. You've just set yourself up to fail. Every billboard you go by has a Big Mac on it. Every place that you go by, you smell pizza cooking, right? So what does your flesh do? Your flesh begins to war against that law that you have self-imposed yourself with. So about the end of the second day, bottom of the third day, you say, I guess I've gone long enough, I'll, I can eat now, right? So you eat, then what happens? You feel condemned, you feel guilty. I didn't keep three-day fast. I failed. The strength of sin, of missing the mark, false identity, is the law, right? Religion empowers the flesh. So you don't, you don't live out of that. In fact, Galatians, we went back when we were in Galatians, the first book that we studied, one of the early things that we, we learned uh, early on was Galatians 2.20 that I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live 
by faith, by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I'm not living out of this flesh anymore. I'm living out of, out of, a, out of a Zoe life, out of, out of a Zoe life source. Um, and that's, that's now I don't, I'm not enthralled with keeping fresh, flesh regulations anymore. I've, it's all been circumcised off. All of my due is gone. I have no more due. All right, now verse 12. Verse 12, he's telling us how we got this. So in verse 11, he says, the first thing that he did was circumcise you spiritually, cut off the guilt, the condemnation, the fear, the anxiety, all the stuff that went with trying to please religion. Then he says in verse uh, 12, here's the second way. Colossians chapter two, let me just whip over there. Verse 12, it says, we were buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now that's probably when I should have brought that, that uh, Galatians 2.20 in. It says it's the same thing here. We were buried with him in baptism, verse 12, in which you were also raised with him through the faith. So you're crucified with him, you were raised with him, and when he was raised, you were raised from death to newness of life. So he's saying, if we died with him, then we also came into this place of eternal life with him. So he's saying, here's how you, you got what you got. Here's how the wisdom, the knowledge, the completeness in him, here's how, here's how it happened. You received eternal life when you were raised from the dead with Christ. Co-resurrection. Co Co-crucifixion, Galatians 2.20, co-resurrection. So that the life that you live now, you don't live in the flesh, you live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for us. So we're living out of a different life source now. He's saying, this is what got you to where you need to be. Then he goes on to verse 13, and I'll tell you what. You need the pastor to help you misunderstand verse 13. He just makes this so obvious. Verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. When you were in that state, you didn't know, you weren't awakened to the idea or the truth that he had circumcised your flesh, guilt, condemnation, fear, anxiety, all those things, he cut away. When you were still back in that position, verse 13, and you being dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, when you were in that condition, he made alive together with him having forgiven all your trans, all your trespasses. And when, so in this condition, when you were dead, in your mind you were separated, when you had no hope, he made you alive. Not that you did to make you alive. He made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. That was a one-way act that he did. Now remember, point two, Paul is, is telling them why they have what they have in point one. Why they have verse three and verse nine and 10. Why they have it. It's because of what he has done for them as them, okay? Then in verse 14 and 15, this is, he single-handedly did this. You did not help him, he did this. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, whatever laws that you felt you had to keep, he wiped it out. They were contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, and he nailed them to the cross. So he took them, he, they're dead. They're if they didn't have enough death in themselves, he nailed them to the cross, final death. And having disarmed principalities and powers, 
He's delivered you from the power of darkness, translated you into the kingdom of his dear son. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, paraded them through town as defeated foes, triumphing over them. Totally, single-handedly took care of everything that would, that would try to oppose you. And so Paul lays tremendous groundwork down to show them how they got what they got. And I'm showing you today how you got all the grace, all the good stuff that you now possess because of what Jesus has done. And he lays it out so well and extracts all of our do out of this, which makes us take another deep breath, a sigh of relief. If, if all you had was Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, you know what? You got the gospel, man. You got the message. You have the good news. Now, unfortunately, the Jews of Jesus' day, the Judaizers of Paul's day, and the evangelicals of our day don't want you to get the revelation of this. That's why you never heard it in church. Well, honestly, the big reason you never heard it is because the pastor or the teacher was never taught. He didn't, ha he didn't have his eyes open to it. I don't, th I, don't think, I don't think people try to deceive us. I, don't, I certainly didn't try to deceive anybody for 35 years as a pastor when I was teaching this stuff. Before I, 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 I awakened to, to what the gospel was. I thought I was teaching the gospel, but I wasn't trying to deceive anybody. But our, our eyes were blinded, and we don't want people today, and I think there are some today that don't want you to get it, that are seeing what we're saying, but they don't, they don't want you to get it because it eliminates your need of them telling you how to live, how to gain favor from God. Go to 10 churches Sunday morning, if you can go to 10, and you'll hear in all 10 ways to improve yourself, to make yourself acceptable to God. You'll hear three steps to victory, four steps to answered prayer, uh, five steps how to live a victorious life, and all of it is behavior modification of what you need to do to make yourself right with Him. All right? So now, point one, he tells them what they have. Point two tells them how they got it. Then in this third point, He's going, to, he's going to show them what tries to steal, kill, and to destroy what they have, what they have right now, who you are already today, whatever, whoever makes you feel like you don't have point one, they're trying to take it from you. I don't care what it is or who it is. Anybody that tries to make you think you don't have what we talked about in the first point, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the completeness in him, of the Godhead and bodily form within you. Anybody that tries to detract from that, they're trying to kill, steal, and to destroy. And when those people come to you, you need to run from them. I mean emotionally. You can, you, you, you can still love them, hang out with them, go to lunch with them, whatever. But I'll give you a real piece of advice that I've learned. I'm telling you from experience. You need to put some boundaries around your spirit. Put some boundaries around your emotions, around your subconscious, and allow no contaminated seed to be dropped into your heart. Those that come to steal, kill, and to destroy, I'll tell you what, some are very persuasive. There's a very persuasive Calvinist and Armenians out there that the filter that they read scripture through, they are completely convinced and they can be very persuasive. If you give that ear, I'm telling you what, it'll drop seed into your spirit and you'll begin to produce a harvest of doubts. 
until you get established in truth. I know it's hard to shut those old friends out. I don't have near the friends today that I had at one time in my life. I don't have, I just don't. And it's because of what I believe. You know, they don't believe what I believe. And it's hard to shut them out when I, you know, there was a day I had to walk over the line and say, look, I stand for truth as I see it. People can be with me, against me. It doesn't, it, it's not gonna affect where I'm going and what I'm doing. So they'll work on you to convince you that you have made the gospel too good. It just can't be that good. You've made your Jesus too big and you've made your father too inclusive, right? That's basically, they won't say it in that words, but that's really what they're saying. The gospel is, you can't make the gospel that good. There's something you have to do. You've made Jesus too big. He couldn't have finished everything. There's a part we have to drop into the puzzle. And you've made your father too inclusive. There are outsiders and there's insiders and you're trying to include everybody. You're trying to tell me that Ephesians 4, 6 is true, that there is one God and father of all who is through all and in all. Are you trying to tell me that's what it means? No, God, no, there's a father, but you have, to, you have to do to come to him. I can tell you that it's only going to get gooder, the gospel. Jesus is only going to get bigger. And you're only going to see the father more inclusive than you've ever seen him before. You're not going to go backwards. So let's briefly look at what tries to take from you what you have, okay? Verse 8, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheats you through philosophy. You know what philosophy is? Philosophy is a way of looking at the world through knowledge, reason, values, and cultural norms. You know, that's, that's what religion does. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. And he says, watch out. He said, don't fall for that or empty deceit according to the traditions of men. This is a big one. Traditions of men are the accepted norms that are passed from one generation to the next generation. If you've been in religion long, you have, you have, you have uh, encountered traditions. We didn't question them. We just, we, they had a scripture to go with the tradition. In my church, they had a manual full of traditions that were passed. And you kept what was in the manual. We never questioned hell. We never questioned the endemic nature. We never questioned this thing of an angry God. We never questioned penal substitution. We just accepted the tradition. Then he says in verse 16, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. People get a conviction. Don't let anybody judge you in those things. People get a conviction. They try to turn it into a universal doctrine. First generation gets a conviction. They pass it to the center. second generation. It becomes a good way to live. And by the time it gets to the third generation, it is a doctrine. Be it what day to worship on, uh, what you should eat, what you should drink, where you should be, what entertainments you can go to, what you can't do, what you can do, what television programs are acceptable. You know, don't drink wine. Where does it say you shouldn't have it, that you can't drink wine? Jewish feast days. All those are burdens that are placed on us that rob us of point one, what we have been freely given through point two, right? And then he says the last thing, verse 18, religious humility. And I'm, I'm running short on time. Religious humility. Well, let me read the verse. Chapter two, verse 18. Let no one cheat you uh, uh, regarding taking delight with false humility. 
worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Re religious humility. Man, it sounds so good, so pious. People that fast all the time, read through the Bible every year. I mean, the talk is so good, and they talk such a good game, and they know the scriptures, and they can argue their case. And they, what they're trying to do is what the Pharisees did, and that is to search the scriptures to try to find life in them. And it makes them very pious, makes them very self-righteous. He said, don't fall for that. That is the most, you can, now that you are where you're at, you can smell that one a mile away. That's probably the least difficult to avoid. You can smell it, that false humility a mile away. So then he concludes it. I shouldn't have closed my Bible. I thought I was done, but I forgot. Let me conclude this up. He concludes it in verses 20 to 23. So he says in verse 20, therefore, or the conclusion of the matter is this. If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to uh, regulations? So Paul is saying, he's laying down point one. He said, what Christ did through your death with him as you, nothing can be added to that. That's what he's saying in verse 20. Let me read it again. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why? as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to the regulations of the world? Don't try to add to what you did with him as him and him as you. You can't add to it. He's saying it very, very clearly. So don't bite the bait. Don't bite the bait that, that more needs to be added to Christ's full, completed work as it manifests in you. Just let the work manifest. Don't bite the bait that you've got to go to church every week. You have to tithe. Don't bite the bait. Then verse 21 and 22. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. What's he saying here? He's saying all these little things that religion tries to add, they have no lasting value. They perish. They, you, you have to do them and do them and do them because they are in fact man-created, man-empowered, and man-enforced. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He, he circumcised that off of you. Then in, in verse 23, he says this, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value in the indulgences of the flesh. In other words, they look good, they sound good, they have no power, and they don't work. You and I both have friends that are in religion that are working their head off and they're no further down the road than they were 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. They're still going through the same motions, trying to get a different result out of doing the same things. That's not the journey you're on. The journey you're on is, is new every morning, man. I mean, every day you're discovering something you didn't know the day before. This. This is a joyous journey. I'll tell you what, back in, back in the religious days, it got a little boring because you kind of knew everything that was to be known, right? You knew everything that everybody believed and what you should believe. So when you showed up to church, you just had a, a, kind of a, like a wagon running over the same wagon rut week after week. It just made it deeper and deeper. It entrenched you more. But it, every week you had to redo it all. Every week you either had to get saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, or rededicate your life. Something. You had to do something. And Paul says, forget it. It doesn't work. 
Colossians 2 is an awesome chapter. I just kind of took the tops out of the trees. There's so much more in this. And someday I might come back and just do Colossians because, man, it is, it is a deep book. Paul clearly lays out, number one, what we fully possess. Number two, he shows how we got it, verses 11 15. And verse three, he highlights and outlines so clearly those things that are thieves, Jesus said, that come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. All right, this week, let's consciously live in the fullness of the Christs that is us. Let's fully live in, in, in just the consciousness of our Christedness. Can we do that? You say, well, I, I don't really understand. I don't feel it all. Well, I just want you to then begin to think about it. Begin to meditate what it means to be filled, verse 10, with all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What does it mean? How does it feel to be complete in Him? I'm telling all these little tentacles begin to come off. All these little uh, ties and cords. And the more that comes off, the freer you become. This is a great walk, great journey. And I don't know of any people that I would rather make it with than you people that are right here at the Digital Cathedral. We're an expanding group, we're worldwide, and you're part of that influence. And I appreciate your prayers and support as we do this work together. See you Wednesday night, back next Sunday morning. We'll pick up chapter three of Colossians. You might wanna read a little bit ahead of time, read it in a couple of versions. Let's get ready for Colossians three next week. God bless.